welcome to Blue Zones Revisited, the podcast that takes another look at science, society, and longevity around the world. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Simon. Simon, I thought we were in for a short conversation this week. After all, the Netflix series only devotes 15 minutes of the third episode to the Greek island of Ikaria. And the first edition of the book really only mentioned it in passing. It wasn't until the second edition that it got a chapter to itself, like the other Blue Zones we've visited so far. Well, if anything, our record so far, the longer the episode, the shorter we've discussed about it. That's probably true, and I wonder if that's because the episode itself is so comprehensive, or... I wonder if it's because the claims they're making are just so flippant, there's a lot more to digest. You do need to kind of dig further into it, the less information that's provided Mm. to you, that's probably right. And... I do have more notes on this location than anywhere we've discussed so far. But I think it's somewhere we've been looking forward to visiting, right? Absolutely. We're currently studying Greek, hoping to like learn my roots a bit better and things like that. So it's really interesting to go back there and have a look around, at least in podcast form. Yeah. So as it's quickly becoming a pattern, the Netflix episode on Ikaria begins with some... Oh, food? Yes. Scenic shots. (laughs) Yeah, well, both. Mouth-watering scenes inside a Greek kitchen where a bean soup and spanakopita are being prepared. It's not going to shock people to learn there's a longevity hotspot in Greece, Butner says, given that Greece is the ho- one of the homes of the Mediterranean diet. And he goes on to say that everyone knows the Mediterranean diet is good for you with its greens and olive oil instead of butter and the sparing use of meat. Yeah, that's quite crazy. I mean, depending on who you ask, the Mediterranean diet is a very different thing. Mm, but we've spent so we've spent at least six months in the Mediterranean, maybe more now, uh, various places. There's a lot of meat around. And a lot of variation too, yeah. as you say. Now, Simon, you come from a Greek family background, um, but many of your family members are vegetarian. So would you say that the sparing use of meat characterises the Greek diet in general? I wouldn't say that at all. Because we've got a lot of vegetarians in my family, because there's a lot of people who are uh, into more new age spirituality type mm-hmm. things, a lot of their dishes are vegan equivalents of meaty dishes in Greek cuisine. Mm. In fact, I'm pretty sure your auntie has written a cookbook which specifically shows how to adapt a lot of Greek cuisines to gluten-free and vegetarian yes, dietary right. requirements. Yeah. yeah, which is fantastic. But I, I remember the last time we visited her, actually, she told us a, an interesting story about one of her own trips uh, to Greece and... Yeah, that's right. She stayed with cousins and tried Mm -hmm. to explain the vegetarian thing, but I don't think they quite got it. So I think your nana actually called in advance, right? And explained, like, she doesn't eat meat, she doesn't, you know, like, that's any kind of meat. It's a foreign concept. It's it's Mm -hmm. that. And it's also a bit of a, like, a joke. It's a bit of a meme of, you know, oh, oh, you're vegetarian? Okay, just have lamb. Yeah, which I'm pretty sure she was served as soon as they arrived, right? Of course, we don't want to just rely on anecdotal evidence from our own brief experiences in Greece and and the stories that we've heard from family. So I decided to do a bit of research into what actually constitutes the Mediterranean diet, which 
is pretty tricky because, as you say, it, it does vary from place to place. And not only does it change from place to place, online, if you search for Mediterranean diet, you're going to mostly get people in America and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. other parts of the Anglosphere talking about what they think the Mediterranean diet is rather than actually what Mediterraneans eat. You're right. That is especially one of the challenges if you are looking in English. So yeah. I, I would always encourage, wherever possible, if you're trying to do research on a particular country, you know, mm. try to look for information in that country's language mm. um, because you then get an internal perspective as opposed to the external viewpoint. Um, now, it's true that both the Mediterranean Diet Foundation and the Greek Dietary Guidelines recommend eating meat red meat specifically, less than two times a week. Fish, however, is recommended two to six times a week. Poultry, two to four times a week. And eggs, also two to four times a week. So while it's true that red meat isn't eaten at every meal, and we certainly don't eat red meat more than twice a week, I wouldn't say. No, probably not. Maybe once is more to our standard. But certainly the Mediterranean diet would seem to include some sort of meat or animal product in terms of recommendations for daily consumption. But, of course, we also have to consider the fact that what we're told to do and what we actually do aren't necessarily the same thing. Around a year ago, the English-language news site GreekReporter.com stated that meat consumption in Greece is actually the highest among 11 European countries surveyed. And although the dietary guidelines there might emphasise fish, people eat as much seafood as they do meat. So even though they're told, you know, well, eat lots of fish, actually meat consumption is just as high. And in particular, the islands, which I think we'd probably associate with seafood, had much higher levels of meat consumption. They noted that this is in part because vegetarian alternatives are a lot more difficult to come by than they are on the mainland. It's also important to note that contrary to people's image of Greece with sparse islands over a great distance, Mm -hmm. it's actually a very urban place. Most people live in Athens Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a smaller amount of the population outside of that. It's very concentrated in the one city. Yes, and while 3% of Greeks who live in Athens consider themselves to be vegan or vegetarian, vegetarianism, Greek reporter reports, is virtually unheard of on the islands with statistics showing that Greeks eat 78.7 kilos of meat per person per year, which is more than in Poland, the Czech Republic, Sweden, Switzerland, Bulgaria, Estonia, Finland, Slovakia, Norway, Romania, Russia, Croatia, Lithuania, and about twice as much as nations like South Africa, Albania, three times as much as Vietnam or Egypt or Honduras. And a lot of those are nations that we tend to think of having dishes that are quite meaty oftentimes. Mm, Sausages and... Yeah, stews. Snitzels. Yes. So obviously our perceptions of, you know, what are the famous dishes from a particular place are not necessarily a good reflection of what people do tend to eat day to day. I think the only way you could really describe Greek meat consumption as sparing is if you're comparing it to, once again, the USA as your benchmark. Because the US is one of the top five meat consumers in the world, where they eat 124.8 kilograms per person per year. Whoa. Yeah, I was so shocked at that. That's impressive. It is, isn't it? Because it means um, that people are eating, you know, more than two kilos per person. Person 
per week of meat. It's it's amazing. I I know we we wouldn't eat that in a month for sure. We've never bought that much meat. <laughs> uh, but Australians, you know, we're not typical there either because Australians apparently eat 110 to 120 kilos of meat per person per year as well. 2.3 kilos a week. I can imagine that though. Mm-hmm. It's meat's almost the staple as part of a meal rather than yes, that's, the sides. That's a good point. Yeah. And looking at other family members that aren't vegetarian, I think that would absolutely be the case that your meal is decided around the meat rather yeah. than treating meat as a kind of not, not garnish, an but an, yeah, an extra. Mm. Exactly. So you might recall that reducing meat consumption was a really big emphasis of the last episode that we talked about as well. So I thought I would look into the figures on this also. Is reducing our meat consumption really the most important thing that we can do for our health? What countries around the world eat the least meat? Bhutan, Bangladesh, Burundi, Rwanda and the DRC all eat less than 100 grams of meat per week on average, while Denmark, New Zealand, Luxembourg, Cyprus and the US eat the most. That's very interesting that Cyprus is in there. I thought so too, because obviously Cyprus has the Mediterranean diet as well, you could say, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's Mm. smack bang there in the middle of the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. Well, off to the side, but you know what I mean? It's (laughs) It's a Mediterranean island. Yeah. So if reducing or even eliminating meat from our diet is one of the most important lessons that we can learn, not just from Ikaria, but from several blue zones then we might expect to see higher life expectancies among those countries that eat the least meat and lower among those that eat the most, right? Well, this is where we run into the problem that eating meat is associated with the wealth. Indeed. And I think your list really shows that. Yes. So instead, the life average life expectancy among the top meat-eating nations, you'll be unsurprised to hear, is around 80 years of age, while in the five nations that consume the least meat, it's just 65 years of age. So would I recommend on this basis that you should increase the amount of meat that you eat and potentially nab up to 15 extra years of lifespan? Well, no. I think once again, it's the recommendation of be rich have access to healthcare, don't live in a precarious situation. Mm -hmm. Unsurprisingly, the countries that eat the most meat are the ones that can afford it. Rather than meat necessarily being good for you, being rich and able to buy meat and other nice things in life, such as quality healthcare, might be a more important recommendation. In fact, a more detailed look at those five countries lends a bit more weight to this interpretation. Although the average lifespan for the top five major meat-eating countries was just over 80 years of age, this figure is actually significantly dragged down by the presence of the United States in this bunch, because the average is over 82 years if we exclude the US. In fact, the US life expectancy is only four years more than that of Bhutan, which is one of the least meat-eating nations. But it's five or six years shorter than any of its other you know, high meat consumption counterparts. But they are on the top of the meat eaters. Yeah. So maybe there is a correlation. So there. <laughs> in terms of life expectancy, the US looks like a poor nation. Now, you might say it's unfair to measure the effects of meat consumption by just comparing very rich and very poor countries. But this is the sort of simplified message that Netflix and other documentaries all too often push 
that there's this simple list of easy things we can do to fix ourselves. And also that if we suffer disease, well, that's our fault. When the reality is that health is a lot more complex than that. As we discussed in the last episode, and as the doctor's colleague who kept getting cancer and heart troubles despite having a healthy lifestyle illustrated, you can do all the quote unquote right things and still have poor health especially if the environment that you're in isn't conducive to health. And really, that's what the investigation of blue zones, if they exist, should be about. Identifying how these various factors work together, rather than trying to package up discrete chunks of advice that can be dispensed to anyone, anywhere. And there are points in time where the book and the documentary do this, when they talk about the importance of community and interrelatedness and things like that. But it's, it's exceptionally difficult to do that. It's a monumental task to try and sum up, to distill the essence of a community in a series or a book that someone's going to consume in half an hour or so, which is part of the reason why our episodes are so long. <laughs> We might as well say that the best recommendation is simply be rich. And although that's pretty callous to say, I would actually put that advice on par with the get a faith advice that we heard in the previous episode. It's not that simple, right? Yeah, not everyone can do it. Mm. Regardless of these quibbles over meat consumption, the Mediterranean diet seems to be one of the first real links between blue zones. If we think back to our conversation about Sardinia, we spoke about the panada, the relation of the pizza, uh, which we might also compare to the Spanakopita. But interestingly, when describing the role of the diet in the Sardinia chapter of the Blue Zones book, Dr. Carl takes pains to emphasise that Barbasia is not like the rest of the Mediterranean. They don't eat a Mediterranean diet. Icaria, the documentary tells us, is a special island because its residents live about seven years longer than Americans and with about half the rate of cardiovascular disease. Well, already seven years longer than Americans isn't that big a deal since Americans only live, Mm -hmm. uh, well, what was it, average of four years shorter than the largest other meat-consuming countries. Yes, um, that's, that's very true. And also, what did we say in, I think it was very close to Bhutan, right? Yeah, yeah four years, right. only four years more than people in Bhutan. Mm. And so when we're talking about a small population like Ikaria, mm -hmm. uh, we are already looking at a situation where data can easily look askew. So I can see some problems already. Mm. What was really interesting, he goes on to say, is that as I was meeting people over 60 or 70 or 100, I couldn't find any cases of dementia. Now, just as in the second episode where he was looking at Sardinia, when Buner says that he didn't see any nursing homes, I would say that not meeting anyone with dementia does not mean that such people don't exist, right? Dementia, as we've discussed before, can be very subtle. It fluctuates, it often goes undiagnosed for years, when family, friends and even doctors don't necessarily notice that it's progressing in a person. Meeting someone briefly for the purposes of filming a documentary does not really give someone, especially if they're not medically trained, enough of an opportunity to assess whether or not any of the people they meet have dementia, and particularly when you don't even speak 
the language that they talk. We spend a lot of our time wandering around countries that we haven't been to before meeting new people. And it's, I say it's very rare that you come across someone and say, oh, I guess that person has dementia. It's probably, mm-hmm. you know, one or two people a year. Yeah. And even then, you, you never know whether they have dementia or... Or just a bad day. Yeah, yeah, it could be that. <laughs> Various other issues, exactly. Because most people who have a dementia that has advanced to the point that it's noticeable even to outsiders are not going to be out and about in society as much as somebody who doesn't. Um, They're probably under some sort of care, either within the home or a nursing home, and they certainly aren't going to be suggested as candidates for interviews. And I think that's the really important point, right? Absolutely. I also doubt that he was administering any kind of, you know, memory, perception, problem solving, or other sorts of diagnostic tests. He was there not to give people brain scans, but to talk about lifestyle and diet. The claim in the book in relation to dementia, however, is much more reasonable. It says that only 20% of people over 80 in Ikaria showed signs of dementia compared to almost 50% near Athens. Now, you might think I'm being picky here, and normally I try not to treat speech as critically as I would a written statement because people have time to prepare them and edit them when it's written down. But the claim in the documentary that there is virtually no dementia in Ikaria is repeated on the website and in a whole bunch of other material news articles and so forth in relation to the Blue Zones, that there is virtually zero dementia in Ikaria. In fact, the website says, without any citation, that people over 85 in Ikaria have a less than 10% chance of developing Alzheimer's, which I find a little confusing because apparently there's already a 20% prevalence among 80-year-olds. But moving on, something that struck me when we see the beaches of Ikaria in the opening of the episode, as you said, there's of course a lot of beautiful scenery, is not just the lovely blue sea and the white sands, but the fact that those sands are covered in rows of beach umbrellas and banana lounges. So Simon, I've got a still here from the opening of the Ikaria episode just a couple of minutes in. Can you describe the picture for our listeners? Well, we're looking at a beautiful blue sea with a rocky outcrop with a church, white church with a blue roof, of course, on Mm -hmm. it, and then a white sandy beach with a row of umbrellas. Yeah, so there's literally dozens of these beach umbrellas and and lounges underneath. And uh... absolutely, Um, as you would expect, it's another you know tourist hotspot for the Mediterranean. Hmm. So it's not uh, as big a tourist mecca as some of the more famous islands that you would hear about, but it certainly does have some level of tourism, hotels, etc., and obviously probably a population that fluctuates quite a bit seasonally. Absolutely. I mean, we've been to a few places like. That and like we spent quite a bit of time in the off season in Corfu, which is another tourist heavy place. Mm -hmm. And the way the as you say, the population fluctuates greatly because there is so many people not coming just from overseas to spend vacations there, but people from the mainland as well. And in the off season, all the young people leave, Mm. and we're you know, so the village in which we stayed, which was a small village under a you know, under 400 people Mm -hmm. living there, Mm -hmm. was mostly older people because they're the people who don't migrate to the mainland in the off season. Yeah, it was really interesting. So we were there at Christmas time um, and then just a bit after Christmas time, a different year. So the December, January months are really, really quiet in 
Corfu, Herkida, and it's it's just a completely different experience, isn't it, to our visits to other islands during the tourist season? Absolutely, because more where Ikaria is, we've went into that area during the peak season, and yeah, mm. it's very different feeling, isn't it? Absolutely. And we kind of, I guess, stuck out a bit because we were there in the off-season and we had uh, lots of the elderly residents would talk to us if we went out for a walk. It was quite lovely wasn't it absolutely yeah and i think that it was it was interesting we spoke to one person who told us that uh there was about two i I don't want to say two million but i feel like it was some obscenely huge number of visitors like that during the peak season but as you say lots of the villages only have a couple of hundred people during the off season in the peak times lots of younger people will come back to the island and work in hospitality jobs that allow them to then go to Athens and perhaps stay with family and celebrate Christmas and New Year's and so on on the mainland, whereas a lot of the older people remain. So it's a a very shifting type of demographic makeup there. When I find a place with outsized longevity, Butner says, I want to find out how it's different. And a good place to start is with its history and geography. And he goes on to explain how Ikaria's culture is unique because of its unique geography. It lacks natural ports. And from what I've read, the residents at one point actually destroyed the one port they did have um, to protect themselves from outside attacks. By the Middle Ages, he goes on, Ikaria was almost completely isolated from the rest of the ancient world. And that meant that they were unable to depend on supplies arriving from the mainland and instead had to work out how to live with this, you know, very rocky soil, as you mentioned. Simon. It's actually through that hardship, Butner says, that they emerge as one of the healthiest populations on the planet. He speaks to an elderly woman who's not credited until the very end of her statement. Instead, the documentary just highlights the name of the local guide there who's translating. Before 1980, the island was completely self-sufficient, says Butner, asking what does she remember about that time. And it was at this point that I noticed something kind of odd in the style of documentary making. So not only does the documentary not credit the person who's actually being interviewed here, but we also see, perhaps I'll show you a a still shot of this part as well, Simon. So what I'm looking at is a two women at a table having a conversation and a man off in the corner sitting, uh, looking at his laptop, not engaging with them. Yeah, when I first sort of watched this segment, I kept wondering, like, why is he twiddling his thumbs under the table like that? But then I realised it wasn't fiddling with anything, but typing on a laptop. And it's sort of strange that the documentary makers would have depicted this as a conversation. Not to say that researchers can't use laptops, but it's kind of poor form in terms of interviewing somebody to not look at them. And it's also poor form in terms of using, you know, working with a translator to not speak to the person you are speaking to and to instead address the translator themselves. So in the conversation between the two women, the elderly lady describes how they only had wheat because they grew it and their coffee was made out of not coffee, but roasted chickpeas and barley, which is quite a common thing in various places around the world, right? Yeah, we've had that quite a few times. It's quite nice. It's you mm. know, it's not coffee, but it is a nice drink. Yeah, it's, it's a different sort of a flavour, isn't it? And Butner tells us that a very different style of Greek life emerged, including the drinking of herbal teas, sage, rosemary, and common mallow. 
all of which are pretty regularly drunk throughout Greece today. I think we've tried all of those. Yeah, you'll find them in most supermarkets for sure. Mm. And it's not just those sort of, you know, mass-produced tea bags that you can find in the supermarket either. Uh, Greece has lots of organic or, as they call them, um, bio shops that sell the loose teas and herbs throughout the mainland and the islands. The book adds also wild oregano to this list, but it only mentions research on chamomile, peppermint, and hibiscus. Which are not teas from there. No, so we're supposed to believe that these teas are really good for you, but the, the, there isn't any evidence presented for those specific teas. I mean, this is the funny thing about blanketing all herbal teas mm-hmm. as herbal teas, right? Mm-hmm. Because herbal tea can mean anything. It's just anything that's not from the normal tea leaf. Yeah, and it's one of these issues... I think that we tend to think of something like herbal tea as being universally healthy. But it's this strange paradox whereby people seem to have a simultaneous belief that it's very helpful. I mean, where in Bulgaria, as we speak, in this part of Europe, you go to the supermarket, just an average supermarket, and there will be stacks of teas that promise to do all sorts of things, you know, lower your cholesterol, fix your diabetes, help you manage your irritable bowel syndrome or your menopause or whatever. Like there's stacks of them, right? Absolutely. And it's even worse in some places like Albania, we were seeing teas that cure cancer cure or cancer whatever. And things like that, yeah. <laughs> yes. There's, there's lots of these different teas. And so on the one hand, people seem to believe that they have an effect. But on the other hand, don't believe in that effect strongly enough to think, oh, these things should be regulated or, oh, we should actually figure out what the you know proper dosages of these things are or, oh, we should work out who should and shouldn't be taking them. Because there are some herbal teas that can be damaging to your health if you consume them, um, for instance, while pregnant or whatever. So there's lots of different reasons that you might want to be sceptical of claims yeah, about, if things, you know, or, or careful. If mm. a plant has an active ingredient that's going to affect your body then we need to know how it does that and Mm. whether it might be actually dangerous to some people exactly now we are not anti-herbal tea we drink a lot of herbal tea ourselves it's it's nice but it's not to say that these just because there's research that mentions chamomile or peppermint does not mean that rosemary for instance is going to have the same effects we want to know what the effects of that specific tea are But Buna tells us that drinking herbal tea could be related to reducing dementia because all herbal teas, he says, are anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and often contain diuretics which lower the blood pressure. Herbal tea, he concludes, has a very strong tie to the longevity of the island's residents. But other than the three teas that this particular lady, who at this point is both nameless and ageless, mentions... We have no idea what specific teas are apparently good for our health. In fact, when he asks her which tea is best, the lady laughingly responds, wine. Now... Well, he must have liked that response. You would think so, right? (laughs) Now, this lady's name, Vaso Parikos, and her age, 88 years old, is finally revealed. I think it would have been good to have this context earlier. And I'm not saying that the documentary makers deliberately left this information until later in the piece. 
um, you know, perhaps hoping that we would think she's over 100 or something. But the way they depict Butner speaking to Kiriapakios, it just suggests that they're not very concerned in making him look like an attentive listener or a good interviewer. And that's not that's honestly not a criticism of Butner, you know, being on his laptop, for instance. You can still be on your laptop and listen, and I know how difficult it is um, when you're working with an interpreter to look like you're paying attention when people are speaking a language that you don't understand. But the way that it's shot in the documentary just seems exceptionally strange. But all of this important information for the context of the interview, when the content of the interview is about ageing, is left until it's too late. This lady was 88 years old in 2023, which would mean she was 43 in 1980. And that means that she's spent about half of her life in this isolated environment that they're talking about. So it would have been good to know that earlier on in the piece, I think. Um, but that's just my quibble about documentary making. Next, Kiria Pakios uh, offers Butner some honey for his tea, which is, well, let's have a look again at that scene. This is the jar of honey in the centre. How does that look to you? Ooh, a nice big jar of honey. Looks delicious. I say jar, but I really mean tin, it's don't a tin, I? Yeah. yeah. So here's our close up. Can you describe what you see there for the listeners? Yeah, it's a tin of honey, I assume, mm -hmm. uh, with Greek honey written on it in both Greek and English. Mm -hmm. Where do you think this came from? <laughs> Somewhere in Greece, I assume. <laughs> yeah, like it's just a sort of generic tin. Yeah, right? it looks like something that's designed for export. Yeah, I mean, it has the, the name on it in English as well as in Greek, as you mentioned. So it seems intended for export. It's not like Mrs. Padikos made this herself presumably. Yeah. But for some reason, Butner directly asks her, is this homemade? <laughs> and she responds that it's from Ikaria. So it is local, but it's certainly not, you know, homemade. Americans, Butner says, sweeten everything with sugar or high fructose corn syrup, while Ikareans, and I'd probably say Greeks in general, have used honey for millennia. Absolutely, but there's also probably syrup is more common. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, honey or syrups made using honey as well are a really big feature of most Greek desserts. In the book, honey is even described as a panacea, which of course is a Greek word meaning all healing. And it's used for everything from treating wounds to curing hangovers or treating influenza. In Africa, we even learned that uh, several hospitals apparently use honey for its antimicrobial qualities to fight disease. But exactly which African country or countries this is practiced in is never mentioned so we can't really find out anything more about this and once again that sounds like the kind of thing you do when you don't have access to proven medicine doesn't it yes like like There's herbal a... teas as a remedy Precisely. There's a reason that hospitals are using this if they don't have antiseptic. What's different about Ikarian honey, Buna says, is that the bees are moved around different areas with different plants. Honey, he says, has been shown to inhibit cancer. And he goes and talks to some beekeepers. So even though we've had all this information about, you know, millennia of honey usage throughout Greece and then the use in Africa, we're now specifically focusing on Ikarian honey. And he asks the beekeepers, it seems that Ikarian honey is contributing to longevity. What does that honey look like compared to honey in a grocery store? And is it healthy 
media somehow. What do you think of that question? <laughs> well, it sounds a very leading question. It sounds like he's already done some research and made up his mind. Yeah, he sort of starts with the premise that Icarian honey contributes to longevity. This is a false dichotomy as well, you know, between honey in a grocery store and Icarian honey. The honey that we saw previously that was Icarian honey very obviously, you know, has the sticker on it and everything and came from a grocery store. It's not mutually exclusive. But the fact that he's asking beekeepers who either own or work for a honey producer whether their specific honey is healthy is kind of mind-blowing to me. It's like if you try on an outfit in a dress shop and then ask the sales assistant, does this look good? Of course they're going to say yes. They're trying to sell you their products. <laughs> I'm not saying that these beekeepers are dishonest people or anything mm. like that, but I mean, if presumably, if they didn't believe in it, um, they're still going to tell you that it is healthy anyway. Hi, I'm making a documentary <laughs> that's going to be seen all across the world. Do you want to talk about how bad your <laughs> export product is? Exactly. And of course, Butner himself, as we've already seen, has a commercial interest in making us believe that honey is healthy too, because he sells it on his Blue Zones trademark website. I think this is part of the problem with making a documentary about a topic that he's already previously done the research for, for the books and everything like that, because mm. he's making it seem like he's organically coming across the things. I went and talked to this old lady. She yes. offered me some honey. Hmm, could this honey be the reason why she's old? Then <laughs> then I'll go talk to some beekeepers. Yeah. Whereas in reality, it's, you know, they're creating this narrative just yes. to make the show easier to watch. And that is not how he's come across this information assumedly i i do have some level of you know sympathy for the filmmakers in that they have to create a narrative that strings these quite disparate places together and that can't have been easy but there are some areas where it just feels really really forced yeah. and we'll actually come to some of those in the second half of this episode. So after Ikaria, um, they move to another destination and the transition there is exceedingly forced. But <laughs> we'll, we'll come to that at the end of this episode of the podcast. <laughs> but that, that destination is actually Costa Rica. And curiously enough, that is where the honey that the Blue Zones website sells comes from. So after all this emphasis on Ikaria and how special their particular honey is, it's not actually available for sale on the Blue Zones website. It's this Costa Rican honey instead. The difference we discover from talking to these beekeepers is that Icarian honey is not boiled or pasteurized in order that the bioactive compounds aren't destroyed. And that apparently has an extra added benefit, as Butner puts it. So the second recommendation in the Blue Zone for Icaria is raw honey. Actually, took a bit of a look at raw honey. There does indeed seem to be research that backs up the claims that Butner has made about potential uses in cancer treatments and things like this. There's It's very early stages research from what I can tell, but there's a lot of promising stuff there. Of course, the antimicrobial properties of honey are quite well known. I was interested in the claims, though, about the pasteurization or, you know, what the beekeepers describe as boiling, because, you know, it's just a 
a heat treatment. That's all pasteurization is. And why do they pasteurize it if it's not good for you? Was my question. You know, if if Absolutely. raw honey is good for you and pasteurized honey is less good for you somehow, then why do it? It seems that it's mainly about shelf stability. You know, making sure that the honey will last a long time once it gets to the supermarket. Also, that it apparently helps stop that crystallization that occurs you know how sometimes when you get honey and you've had it for a while the jar will develop like sugar crystal kind of things on on top yeah, yeah. that is apparently stopped or at least lessened by the pasteurization process yeah yeah i imagine that even though honey is antimicrobial the reason it would be decreasing I mean, increasing the shelf life if you pasteurize it would be because it would be getting rid of those microbes that are dissolving the honey it's not mm -hmm. perfect and so clearly there is a reason to do this well i mean this it's it's difficult to say because there's all sorts of reasons that manufacturers do things and not all of them are for our health that's for <laughs> sure right but it made me wonder, you know, whether the honey that we purchase in Australia is heat treated or pasteurized because I certainly recall the honey that I typically eat crystallizing in that way. I think it really would depend on the brand. Like there is a lot of honeys that are um, very crystalline and then there's a lot of the very syrupy. So I think it really must depend on, on the brand. Mm. But usually it's a, like if you go to a farmer's market or something, you go, wow, this is real honey. Look at the crystallized parts of it. That's true. There's definitely an impression of that. But all this talk about raw honey makes me think of the discussion around raw milk and how there's a lot of people out there claiming that raw mm. milk is better for you. But we know that it, raw milk is dangerous because it is full of these microbes that might be bad for you. But that's not true of uh, raw honey, I don't believe. In fact, I'm just looking at one of the famous Australian manufacturers of honey, Beechworth Honey, and they absolutely sell raw honey. So obviously it's not illegal in the way that it is mm. to sell raw milk for consumption in Australia. And Australia has very strong consumer protection and if there was an issue with this, it probably would be illegal. I think so. But yeah, this is, I'm just looking at the website now, this is the honey that I grew up eating and from what I can tell, theirs is not pasteurised. But it's it's so difficult to, to know. So you'll note that, once again, food has been a massive focus of this part of the episode, beginning with the scenes of those delicious Spanakopitas and the first two factors identified being nutrition-related, namely tea and honey. In Ikaria this time, I had a really big epiphany around love, Butner says. And unsurprisingly, this epiphany around love also seems to be food-related. The love between a couple, Aleka and Paniotis, is exemplified through her gathering of vegetables for their meal. When a spouse dies, Butner tells us, the remaining partner's chance of dying goes up by something like two-thirds over the next three months. But with Aleka and Paniotis, however, we have the reverse happening, he says. They came to true love late in life. When his first wife passed away, Paniotis lost the will to live. But when he was 73, Aleka brought him back to life. On their first date, Paniotis made a meal for her, and we find out that Aleka had married her first husband at 16. She had what she describes as a gloomy life. 
But since meeting Paniotis, she has forgotten the past and feels as if she has lived all of her years with him. Paniotis is now 96 and Aleka 81, and their relationship demonstrates the importance of partnership and nurturing the relationships we have. So this is the third pillar that we get from this flu zone. So the, adv- the actionable advice here is remarry soon if your partner dies. I guess. I mean, I'm actually not sure how many, you know, how long it was between his wife dying and him finding a new love. But regardless, I mean, if you don't have a partner, it's not easy to just say, you know, go find love. Like, that's like saying go find a faith, isn't it? It's not a simple thing to do. Maybe it's easy to find somebody who will agree to marry you, depending on their and your circumstances. But that does not mean it's the same as having actual love in your life. No, exactly right. And it's um, certainly not conducive to the previous, um, what would you say, utilitarian view that Putin has had on, uh, in his research, uh, because you wouldn't say that marrying someone for longevity is love. Oh, I guess we also might need to make sure that, as they said in the previous episode, that the person can teach us how to make plant-based meals. So... <laughs> uh, <laughs> And honestly, you know, I I get the impression that we should be writing in our advertisement, no fatties, no smokers. I mean, that's that's sort of what they Distance yourself from that. Yeah, the last episode kind (laughs) of But I guess it is uh, good advice, though, to, you know, for those who already have partners to not take them lightly and to treat people well and Mm. savor the relationships that you do have. Completely agree. Yeah. And for anyone who doesn't have that, obviously, I think the answer is to look more broadly. Life doesn't just have to have meaning because you share it with somebody else it's wonderful that you can it's can be one of the most rewarding things there is but it's just another form of community you can find community anywhere and you can find people to love in all sorts of circumstances absolutely just on that note i've always believed that whether you're 19 or 90 you're better off alone than you are in a bad relationship with somebody who is dismissive, rude, abusive. That's something that nobody deserves to put up with in their day-to-day life. And I think that we do have to be even more careful about who it is that we spend all of our time with than we are in terms of who we just associate with on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. I don't agree with the idea that we should cut friends out because they don't exemplify the things that we want to achieve in our life. But I do think that the person that we share most of our waking moments with should absolutely be somebody that does not harm us at a minimum (laughs) and brings joy to our lives. I I don't like the idea that you should have a partner because it's going to add to your life. Yeah, I mean, that's already a lot of people feel a a sense of self-worth or lack of self-worth depending Mm -hmm. on whether or not they're in a relationship. Absolutely. There's enough social pressure telling people that they should be in a relationship. And in fact, I've heard a lot of people who have become widowed say that very soon after the death of their partner, they were kind of pressured to start dating when perhaps they didn't feel like it. I don't think that we need to have any kind of uh, recommendation that people get a partner. If you've already got one or if you discover somebody that you want to spend your life with, then by all means treasure them. But don't feel like this is something that you have to do or you won't live a long time or whatever other irrelevant factor there may be. The next factor that Butner identifies is one that he says has played a surprisingly powerful role in the Korea's longevity culture throughout history. And it's an inclusion that surprised me too, because it's wine. We discussed wine at great length in the last episode. 
Well, that was because of the lack thereof in the previous episode. Yes, exactly. Um, But this time we're getting it as a recommendation. So Greek myth says that the god of wine was actually born here, Butner says. Any guesses? You're fairly good on Greek gods. Oh, Dionysus. Yeah. I assume that it was Dionysus that he was referring to, um, who's... You know, most accounts say that he actually arrived in Greece as a foreigner, though. And in fact, Dionysus is well known as an outsider god. And that's one of the reasons that, aside from being the god of wine and insanity and ritual madness, he's also the god of epiphany and the protector of those who don't belong in conventional society. Absolutely. Dionysus has always been seen in my reading of history as Mm -hmm. well as... Mythology. Well, forget about mythology. In my reading of history, Ah, it seems like Dionysus has always um, attracted different cults Mm. that appreciate him and therefore have because of his acceptance of outsiders or his acceptance of happiness and joy yeah absolutely what when you think of like a depiction of dionysus can you you know what sort of person or you know representation do you imagine what does dionysus look like in my head he's usually well bearded uh Uh bare-chested and happy yeah interesting I looked into this because my impression of Dionysus is actually like this sensuous, uh, you know, mostly naked, so that's that's similar, pretty androgynous-looking, youthful person uh, who's often surrounded by this wild band of, you know, followers and exotic beasts. Often, like, very sexually excited men and women are sort of chasing after Dionysus and he's uh, an interesting figure, right? Yeah, and he'd be um, the central god in a lot of orgiastic cults. Yeah, absolutely. But there apparently is like two main depictions of Dionysus. One of them is the slightly more older version, the one with the uh, the beard, as you mentioned, and then there's the slightly younger version, which is, or the, well, the, the much younger version, which is the one that I just described. But neither of them is... You know, like, it's not like Zeus, for instance, who is very clearly an old man. This is not a god of ageing or ageing well. This is a god of being young and partying, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And I think there's also some confusion there as well of what Dionysus is like because there's multiple figures that are being confused as Dionysus. Like, Mm -hmm. is he this foreigner? Is he the son of Hades? Like, Mm. there's lots of different um, depictions of him and I think different myths have been pulled together into the one figure. Absolutely. And it's not just within Greece that there's a lot of this syncretism where you've got different gods or different depictions of the same god that are amalgamated and somewhat, you know, combined like that. But also, it's not like Dionysus is the god of wine either. Because, of course, he's more like a god of wine. There are Mayan gods, Norse, Egyptian, Chinese, Mexican, Zulu, Yoruba, Aztec, Mesopotamian, uh, Hindu, every religion, well, not every religion, but many religions and spiritual belief systems have some kind of god or goddess that is associated with wine. Absolutely, and we've definitely been to at least two fermentation shrines in Japan got where they have gods of 
um, sake and other alcohols. Exactly. So if you've listened to episodes two and three of this podcast, which featured Sardinia and Loma Linda, you'll know that the reason that seeing wine in this particular episode of the Netflix series surprised me is because while the residents of Sardinia were depicted as regularly drinking red wine in the Blue Zones book, the residents of Loma Linda, as you mentioned, Simon, avoid alcohol for religious reasons. So it can hardly be considered a consistent part of the Blue Zones formula that Butner mentioned at the very beginning. And as the Blue Zones website itself notes, recent reanalyses of the studies on which a lot of the claims about the healthfulness of moderate drinking were made has shown that those claims actually came from biased data. So I assumed, naively, incorrectly, that the Netflix series had shied away from including this increasingly controversial advice because of recognition of the problems with it. Not so. They just focused on it in a different episode to the one that I was expecting. And I think maybe because it's in a separate episode from the Loma Linda Seventh-day Adventists, the disconnect isn't perhaps as acutely felt by anyone who's not binge-watching it. But it's not a red wine that they're recommending this time. Butner is depicted as drinking a white wine which he says tastes like Icaria on a spring day. (laughs) (laughs) What is he going around, licking the rocks or something? (laughs) I mean, honestly, as far as wine descriptions go, that's a pretty sedate (laughs) one. I mean, I've heard things like, you know, it tastes like um, freshly mown grass or has the scent of tennis balls. I mean... (laughs) I, I don't drink wine. I certainly don't want to start on the basis of wine descriptions, that's for sure. But could it be that even though we've been hearing about red wine for years, that it's actually white wine that holds the secret to longevity? This time we're talking to a winemaker. So not a beekeeper, but a winemaker. And once again, not a scientist who's studying this stuff. No, uh, we're looking at somebody who is producing the product for money. So Konstantinos Afianes describes how they use a traditional process of winemaking in Ikaria, and they actually still place the wine in amphora underground, which is really cool. Butner says, we're all aware of the controversy around wine and alcohol, but when you look at the wine in Ikaria, something different is happening here. Okay, that's a big claim. Now, obviously, something different is happening in terms of the method of production. But could it be that, you know, using an amphora instead of a barrel, for instance, is somehow going to prevent the wine from becoming carcinogenic or damaging your liver? I highly doubt it. So what is it that's different? He says, the wine is natural. There aren't any chemicals added to it. Oh, okay. That's not what makes wine bad. (laughs) So it's not now the nutrients that are in the skin of the wine. It is now just the fact that this particular wine is made without pesticides. Apparently. Yep, that's it. And this is not unique to Icarian wine. There are plenty of places that don't use pesticides, um, don't add chemicals to their wine, etc. But that doesn't mean that those wines produced in that way do not still contribute to alcohol-related deaths. It's absolute... This is this claim is just not even worth It's just another natural fallacy which we've come to expect. A hundred percent. The winemaker calls the wine medicinal wine and Butner mm-hmm. agrees saying it's nearly like drinking a supplement <laughs> I mean if he means that in the sense of it's expensive and useless then I agree <laughs> but mm-hmm. 
It's not... Oh, the reason he says that is because it contains potassium, phosphorus, boron, and iron. Look, if you want a supplement that contains one or more of those things, go ahead and take it. Better still, eat some food that has those elements in it. I mean, these are very common elements. You can get all of that without all of the hugely detrimental effects of alcohol consumption. Wine at the end of the day. But Butner concludes this section by saying, People in Ikaria have been drinking this wine for over 100 generations, and they're living the longest. And for me, that's enough of a connection to allow me to enjoy my glass of wine at the end of the night. Yeah, that pretty much shows exactly his line of thought on this. Yes, as we suspected, it's just justifying his own desire to drink wine, basically. Like, And I think that a connection like that is probably enough for any of us as individuals to justify something we enjoy doing to ourselves. I mean, who hasn't, as we mentioned before, listened to a news item that says, you know, scientists recommend you eat chocolate and then went, oh, yes, I, I can have this block of dairy milk now. We all do this kind of thing, but... We don't make a documentary. Exactly. It's far from enough evidence to put into a list of lessons that we then go and recommend to people in books and courses and Netflix documentaries, right? Especially a documentary that is being as widely distributed as this. And in sections, it invites actual doctors and other experts to discuss topics. But then other sections, like every part of this episode so far relies on statements made by those who are actively involved in profiting from the products that they feature. Now, don't get me wrong, I in no way want to disparage the sincerity, the artistry and the hard work of the winemakers who are continuing this traditional style of winemaking. But can you imagine if the documentary asked the tobacco industry what their recommendations are about smoking instead of looking at the scientific consensus? Yeah, I think the audience would have a very different view of that. Indeed. I mean, what if you went somewhere that still produces, I don't know, cigars in a traditional way, which there are many places around the world that continue to do this. Would you go and ask the cigar maker what they think of their product? Or would you talk to a doctor or a scientist, more importantly? Even though less than half an episode is devoted to Ikaria, the documentary highlights almost as many lessons from this island as it did for Okinawa. And the fifth one relates to the Panayeris, the all-night parties in which people from 14 to 94 come together and dance all night long. So this is something that you and I have remarked upon um, all throughout Europe, Simon. The celebrations in which people of all ages come together. Yeah, I think there seems to be a bit, a lot bigger sense of community in many parts of Europe. And it's not necessarily around like church, where it would be the only place, sort of place you'd find in the West of very disparate groups getting together, unless mm. it's like a sporting event or something like that. That's a really good point. One of our, I think, best experiences that we've had during our travels in Europe was uh, when we were in Latvia for the... Yes, for the solstice. And there the was... The summer solstice. Yeah, a wonderful celebration of all of these people from different age groups coming together. The whole city had this big party and it was fantastic. Live music, we uh, wove flower crowns and, you know, all sorts of cool stuff. It was... And that definitely went all night. Oh, yeah. And the elderly people were there all night too, as were the little kids. That's and right. I think... What makes these, even, you know, more recently when we had the New Year's celebration here in Bulgaria where we're currently staying, it was amazing to see 
everyone from babies to you know the great grandmas out in yeah in, in the, the, in the square, square in the square um celebrating and doing so all together that's something that is so atomized in australian society and i suppose american culture as well that groups of people tend to unless as you say it's a, a church event or something similar people tend to congregate only with people in their own peer group their own age group somewhat interestingly though we're not actually treated to any images of the very old or the very young dancing in the documentary it's just a group of relatively young adults who are depicted because I guess they didn't go and film a real panieri. Like, there's only about, I don't know, half a dozen people at this event. It seems exceptionally staged. And I think it's a it's kind of disappointing because if you're making a documentary, it's not like there aren't stacks of these panieri to go and film throughout the year because even though they're not they're kind of secularized and they're not specifically religious events they are held for the saints days yeah. and there are a lot of saints days <laughs> absolutely almost every day is a saints so day so there should have been some opportunity to go and see um some real to get some real footage right but the greek portion of the netflix episode is so compressed that we don't really learn anything about the history of these events the word panieri literally means everything or everyone and gather. And these, so, you know, it's related to panacea that we discussed earlier. And these celebrations date back to ancient Greece when they used to be called Mysterio. <laughs> that sounds a bit funner. I know, right? So Mysterio were held in the hopes of getting a god or goddess on the community's side. And even today, as I mentioned, they still have a spiritual element because they're held in connection with days that are used to celebrate the saints. Importantly, aside from socialising, there's this physical component here too. And exercise, we learn from this example, can be accompanied by laughter and joy, not just sweat and grimacing, as is something that we've come to view exercise as in a lot of places, I think, in Australia and the US certainly. You know, we tend to think of exercises grueling rather than fun for the most part yeah and also competitive as we sort of talked about last time it's something that you do to either win or get thin rather than to just enjoy life Buna concludes this part of the episode by saying it wasn't surprising you'd find extraordinary longevity here, but after marinating in the beauty and culture of Icaria, it wasn't until I travelled back to the Americas that I found the most extraordinary centenarians on the planet. And this is an intriguing claim, not solely because obviously we're intrigued to find out how these centenarians are extraordinary, but because Ikaria is the later addition to the project, not the other way around. Ikaria didn't even feature in the first edition of the book, published in 2008, that I read all those years ago. The second edition of the book, which I've currently borrowed from the library, has the Greek blue zone tacked onto the end of the original four, three of which, Sardinia, Okinawa and America, we've explored so far. The chapter begins with the story of a man named Stamatis Moratis, who emigrated from Ikaria to the US in the wave of immigration that followed World War II. The island suffered greatly during the war, being occupied by both the Italians and then the Germans, and in one village alone, Butner tells us, more than a hundred people perished from starvation. So hardly a recipe for longevity. Really tragic. Stamatis initially went to the US for advanced medical treatment because his hand had been damaged by munitions, but he decided to stay 
and live the American dream, as Butner puts it. When he reached his early 60s, however, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, perhaps from years of inhaling paint fumes or his three-pack-a-day smoking habit, Butner tells us. Given that the cost of a funeral in the States would be at least $1,200, while a nice funeral in Ikaria would only cost about 200 at the time, he decided to return to Ikaria and leave more of his retirement savings for his wife. Although the flight to Ikaria from the States is probably going to eat up a lot of that price difference. I felt it didn't add up too, but I guess that if you're permanently relocating, maybe your living costs will go down as well. So maybe it cancels out. Moving in with his elderly parents in a whitewashed house surrounded by vineyards on the coast and reconnecting with his Greek Orthodox faith, six months came and went, Butner tells us, and Stamatis didn't die. 35 years later, he celebrated his 100th birthday cancer-free. And the book concludes... He never went through chemotherapy, took drugs, or sought therapy of any sort. All he did was move to Ikaria. All right, we've clearly gone into the realm of crazy now. These are not claims you need to be making, and it's obviously anecdotal. It is one person mm-hmm. who we don't know that much information about. But now we've gone into the it's going to cure cancer category. So I don't doubt this story. I think it's quite plausible that um, a man was spontaneously cured of cancer. That's not um, an unheard of phenomenon at all. No, it's it's not an unusual. It's recognised in the medical literature. There are people who recover from cancer without undergoing treatment and we don't know why. That's just the medical establishment acknowledging the limits of their knowledge. Well, this is the thing. Our our knowledge on this kind of thing is statistical knowledge. And the thing about statistical knowledge is, is there's always going to be outliers. So if you ever want to make a case for something, you can always find it. Yes, and that's where I think this is a little disingenuous, to say the least, potentially harmful, to say the worst. It is certainly not the case that everybody who has cancer can be cured simply by moving to Ikaria. Or by living a lifestyle like they might live there. It's like, I can very much easily imagine someone having watched this, their relative is diagnosed with cancer, they're scared about chemo, and they say, well, I just watched this great documentary on Netflix, and you know, Mm -hmm. Netflix isn't some cuckoo crazy bananas thing, and they were talking about how these people live in this place, and it cures cancer, you should start eating this honey instead. So this claim doesn't come from the Netflix series. It's actually in the book. Book, But the book is published by National Geographic, which again, it's not like it's from woo-woo press. It's something that is respected and that people will think has a pretty high standard of evidence. Now, again, not to say that this story didn't occur, because I believe that it probably Mm. did, but it's missing context. Absolutely. The context being that not everybody who has this particular lifestyle, will be cured of cancer. It's a very minute number of people for whom that would potentially happen. And he could have... And if the lifestyle is even, you know, responsible, he could have spontaneously recovered if he'd stayed where he was. Exactly. Um, There are people within the US who have spontaneously recovered from cancer and we don't know why. And that's just acknowledging the limits of our, you know, very basic human knowledge. But I think that by not putting this into context of saying that what number of people this would potentially happen for, 
and the fact that we don't know how it works is really misleading. But another thing that is unfortunate about using this sort of a story to open the chapter is that I think it's quite insulting to anybody who has had cancer or anyone who has a family member who's had cancer. They've nursed and nurtured that person with all of their strength and heart and effort and still not been able to save them. Because it's not the fact that he moved in with his elderly parents and they fostered such a great environment that is, you know, guaranteed to work for everybody. You can do, like we've discussed many times, all the quote-unquote right things and still have a bad outcome. And we shouldn't be... The flip side of all of this positivity is the extreme negativity that comes with suggesting that people have greater control over their own destiny than what they actually have. Another another better reason to uh, move to Greece if you uh, are suffering from a cancer in the States might also be for the um, health coverage. Yeah, if you have that true. option, you can move somewhere that it's not going to cost you an arm or a leg or a lung. Yeah, then... absolutely. <laughs> and that's something we'll discuss a lot more in the next episode, I believe. But according to the second edition of the Blue Zones book, Butin's connection with a career became, began with a phone call from one of the demographers who'd studied the Sardinian Blue Zone. Um, you may remember Michelle Poulain from... And this phone call occurred back in 2008, which I guess is why it didn't make it into that first edition of the book. Even though Butner wrote about Icaria's existence as a potential Blue Zone back then, he chose Loma Linda to include in the book instead. Now, if you recall, the Sardinian Blue Zone was identified on the basis of its extraordinary proportion of resident centenarians. And a similar yardstick was used for Okinawa. The Blue Zones book reports that Okinawans had one of the highest ratios of centenarians, as high as 5 per 10,000 people. But these figures, as we explored in the first episode, may not be reliable. However, when Butner set out to find a Blue Zone in the US, eventually landing upon Loma Linda that we discussed in a previous episode, you recall he used a completely different measure. Of course, because he couldn't find any. Yeah, so he this time used life expectancy compared to the US average instead of the number of centenarians per capita. Pauline's identification of Icaria as a potential blue zone, however, returns to that original method of identifying clusters of villages with an unusual proportion of the population who are over a certain age. But this time, instead of using 100 as the cutoff, or even 90, it seems that Pauline had coloured in those villages that had a large portion of the population who were aged 85 or more. Incredibly, Butner uses this as evidence to claim that Icaria apparently was a mother load for healthy centenarians. So their their metric has changed, but the language he's using hasn't. He exactly. hasn't reflected it. And you don't need a math degree to realize that eighty five is not the same as one hundred. Not all octogenarians or even nonagenarians will become centenarians. And incidentally, these are all words with Greek and Latin roots that should be understood in this part of the world. And it strikes me that they keep looking for villages. Now, how many thousands of small villages are there across the world, small towns? Yes. And when you're looking at such small populations, it's not surprising that you're going to find outliers. Exactly. And it could just be that they're the ones that just 
got lucky and happened to have some people who've lived a long time. That's right. When you're not, you know, putting any limits on where you're looking or what size of population you want to, to control for these random factors, you're going to find places. And, of course, looking at outliers can be an incredibly useful way of studying a phenomena if you look at the outliers and then find that there are commonalities among them. That's mm. really powerful evidence. What isn't powerful evidence, though, is just the simple existence of outliers because yeah. you're always going to have outliers. And if those outliers are true outliers with nothing that really connects them other than factors that are actually common to the mainstream as well, then your study is worth very little. And I would say that that's probably what we're seeing here because so far we've seen, you know, people who don't eat any meat, people who eat meat, people who don't drink tea and coffee, people who drink lots of coffee, lots of tea, people who, you know, don't drink wine at all, people who make wine in a traditional way. There's all sorts of things that they're very different on. And then even in the situations where there are some similarities between them, it's kind of like, but that's just what everybody does. <laughs> um, and of course, that is assuming that these are true outliers in the first place. As we've already discussed, there are usually reasons of rural depopulation that cause these kinds of skewed populations of the very elderly that have nothing to do with longevity, but everything to do with young people simply leaving and therefore the number of very old people going up as a proportion of the whole. Later in the chapter, Butner says that what established Ikaria as a blue zone was the fact that the island had up to three times as many healthy people over age 90 as the rest of Greece, and, like Sardinia, as many healthy males over 90 as females that age. Now, I assume, and this is nitpicking, but I assume he means here that the island had up to as many healthy people over the age of 90 per capita yes. as the rest of Greece. It seems extremely unlikely that Ikaria, which has a population of less than 9,000 people, would have three times as many people over 90 as the rest of the entire country. But that kind of distracts from the other part of the phrasing that's interesting here, which is... Up to. Yeah, up to is a very um, ambiguous term. <laughs> it's like when a store has up to 50% off. <laughs> and zero is a percent. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, how do we define healthy? Whose definition of healthy? What is it? We don't know. We're never told. Although the second edition of the book and the Netflix series don't grapple with the criticisms surrounding Okinawa's designation as a blue zone, the book does describe the debunking of several other candidates, including a valley in Ecuador, another valley in Pakistan, and some mountainous areas in Georgia. These were all debunked after researchers discovered that the residents of these places often didn't know their own age accurately. And that brings me to another common factor between these blue zones that I think we've missed up until this point. The fact that so many of the places are identified as villages doesn't just speak to the fact that there's a high concentration of very old people potentially as a result of the young moving away, but it also hints at the challenges with record keeping that are less present in larger cities. In the villages, Butner reports, one year residents would say they were 80 and a few months later they were 82 and pretty soon they claimed to be 100. And when a town discovers that a reputation for centenarians draws tourists, who's going to question it? 
Something I've found in my research actually, and I do all of this research using DuckDuckGo rather than Google so it's not influenced by my previous searches, is that when you look up, in, at least in English, places like Okinawa or Ikaria, what you get, or even Sardinia, the results that you receive are all to do with blue zones. It's been a real phenomenon. I can't overestimate how much these places, these islands' identities is now bound up with the fact that they are called blue zones. Well, I guess the uh, English-speaking internet is more concerned with how long they're personally going to live than actually discovering things about other parts of the world. <laughs> That's probably true. That's that selfish utilitarian view again, isn't it? And certainly this is how you know you and I have primarily engaged with these places is through this particular series and this book. Were it not for the Blue Zones, I don't think we would be discussing a tiny village of only, you know, a, a tiny island in Greece of only 9,000 residents that isn't really significant in the, the global sphere otherwise. Absolutely. And even Okinawa, which is a much bigger place with, you know, millions of people, we probably wouldn't be discussing that otherwise if it wasn't for the fact that we have, you know, studied Japanese history at university and... True, true. Uh, ...intimate with the, you know, the information there. So the influence that these islands have is really outsized um, because of the Blue Zones phenomena. Buna and Poulain set to work aiming to tally all of the births between 1900 and 1910 and then determine when and where those people died or alternatively find those who were still alive. And this might sound relatively simple, but as we've alluded to before, it involves making decisions about who counts and who doesn't. And Buettner, to his credit, covers this in the book, saying the whole exercise was complicated by the fact that people often moved around. If a boy born on Ikaria moved to Athens and he lived to be 100, did he count? What about a 90-year-old woman who moved from Athens to Ikaria and lived to be 100? Does she count? Not to Michelle. To pass muster, these people needed to be permanent residents. And I really agree with those methodological choices. But I also find it interesting to see how quickly Butner has slipped into calling these elderly people centenarians when Poulain's identification of Ikaria was apparently based on people over 85. And it just, well, you know, that's the name of the Netflix series, right? Live to over 100. Yeah. That's their selling point. That's the thing they're concentrating on and that's the thing that's marketable. Absolutely. And like, while I recognise that it is a kind of arbitrary number, I don't think that people would be as drawn in by a documentary called Live to 85. Not just because it doesn't have the same ring to it that the whole round number of 100 does, but because it's much, much, much less remarkable. Most of us in Australia, in uh, America, in the rest of the Anglosphere, most people, I imagine, would know at least one person who is 85 or above. But very few would know a 100-year-old. I, I haven't met a 100-year-old, have you? I don't think so. I've met mm. plenty of 90-year-olds, but it's still a very small number compared to the number of 80-year-olds I've mm. met. So I decided to find Poulain's research, and using Google Scholar, I searched for anything that he'd published on Ikaria in 2008 and came up with nothing. But seeing as he apparently was undertaking the research at that time, this is 
understandable. So I checked the following year and I found only one relevant citation, which was a citation to an unpublished internal report that Poulain co-authored with Gianni Pes. Do you remember from the Sardinian research oh, yeah, in sure. the beginning? And that was called Report on the Validation of the Exceptional Longevity in Icaria. And that sounded exactly like what I wanted to check what age of cutoff was used in this research. But of course, the tricky thing is, it's an unpublished internal report. Internal to what organisation, you might ask? Absolutely, that is definitely my next question. National Geographic! Oh, there you go. So they're already working for Nat Geo... Way back then. Way back then. Apparently. This Um, is not a scholarly... (laughs) I don't know what the funding arrangements are or anything like that. Um, I wouldn't dismiss it as being unscholarly simply because it was a report for National Geographic, but it does suggest a much greater integration of these organisations than what we perhaps would get the impression from the series or the book. They're sort of presented as outside experts rather than collaborators in a way. So even though I wasn't able to find a copy of this report, considering its internal and unpublished nature, I did find five articles that cited it, each of which was also co-authored by Poulain, and one of which was titled Description of Lifestyle, Including Social Life, Diet and Physical Activity of People Greater Than or Equal to 90 Years Living in Icaria, a Longevity Blue Zone. And the reason given in the article for selecting people over 90 is because that was the cutoff used in the unpublished internal report. Unfortunately, given that this report by Poulain and Pess was never made public, it's impossible to know what methodological reasons the authors might have had for choosing 90 as their benchmark. But we can definitely say that it isn't correct to characterise this research as focused on centenarians, as Butner seems to imply. And specifically not centenarians, given that their previous research was using 100 as their benchmark. Yes. Now, you might think that I'm just quibbling about these definitions. Who cares if the age of those surveyed is in their 80s, like in Loma Linda, or their 90s, like in Ikaria? Isn't that close enough to 100? Just let Netflix have their catchy title live to 100. Just let Butner use the fancy word centenarian in his book. It's close enough. But it's really not. When we talk about people living to their 80s or 90s, we're not really talking about anything that's particularly unusual. Yes, it's old. But it's a pretty average life expectancy for the residents of many countries these days. Living to 100 and beyond, though, that's pushing the limits of our current capabilities. It's the difference between ordinary and extraordinary. If we view a long life as a scorecard, and I absolutely don't think that we should, but just humour me for a moment, then identifying a lifestyle that will allow people to live to their 80s is a pretty expected outcome. It's kind of like a C grade. 90s is above average, let's give that a B. But to get an A or an A+, well, you would need to find a plan that would routinely help people live to 100 or beyond. Because living to your 80s or 90s is just a pretty typical outcome already. 
Here's what I mean. If you're 85 years old in the US, the government's actuarial life table says you can expect to live another five or six years depending on your sex. That is, you've made it to 85, you're more likely than not to make it to 90, but you're still very unlikely to make it to 100. So let's assume that you do make it to 90. On average, you could expect another three or four years. That is, even though you made it to 90, you remain unlikely to get to 100. Can you guess, Simon, how old you would have to become before celebrating your 100th birthday becomes more likely than not? I think it would have to be within a year or two of 100. <laughs> Pretty good. The answer is 98. Once you've reached 98 years of age, you will probably live for just over two more years and make it to see your 100th birthday. But there's still a good chance you won't. I know that's kind of abstract, so let me tell that same story using the same numbers but in a different way. Imagine you've got a population of 100,000 babies. At birth, they can each expect to live to around 75 to 80 years in the US, again depending on whether they're boys or girls. Tragically, however, having an average life expectancy of 75 or 80 years doesn't mean that any of us is guaranteed to our fair share. In fact, of that 100,000 babies, 500 will die before they reach the age of one. Infancy, as we all know, is a particularly dangerous stage of life. After the first five years, it's pretty smooth sailing for most kids, fortunately, at least until boys get into their later teens, when all of those dangerous behaviours that we talked about in a previous episode start to take their toll on males in particular. And 1% of boys will not reach their 18th birthday. That's a really kind of sobering thing to think about, isn't amount. it? I, I really doubt that most people, when they have a son, think, oh my goodness, he has a 1 in 100 chance of not living to become 18. Mm. In a country like the US, it's just, oh. It's one child in every three classrooms. Yeah, I mean, depending on your class size, of course. <laughs> and if it's a male bo or, or boys' school. Very true. For females, this tragic milestone occurs much later at 24, but I still think that's it's incredible to think that 1% of American babies will not live to their 24th birthday. Men continue to be at greater risk throughout their adulthood. 10% of males won't reach the age of 51, compared to just over 5% of females who die before this age. 20% of males in the US won't live to see their 63rd birthday, compared with less than 15% of women. 30% of men and almost 20% of women won't live to see 70. And while a slim majority of women, 61%, will reach that average age of 80, more than half of men, 55%, will die before they reach that age. So this is where our comparison begins. Of the 100,000 babies at the beginning, just over 37,000 men and women survive to the age of 85. To simplify matters, I'm just going to give an average figure for both men and women from now on, but I think it was important to distinguish them at first to demonstrate that massive impact that drinking, drugs, smoking, dangerous work, dangerous driving and war has on men and how early these impacts are seen. Five years later, fewer than 20,000 of those who survive to 85 will have reached 90. That's a little over half of that original figure. Another five years passes and there's now fewer than 7,000 survivors to the age of 95. That's just over a third of those who got to 85. 
By the time another five years passes and it's time for everyone to celebrate their hundredth birthday, there's only about a thousand people left alive to do so. In other words, on average, Americans have around a 20% chance of reaching the age of 90. But if you want to live to 100, as this documentary promises, there's only a 1% chance of that happening. And if you're a man, it's more like half a percent. So to understand what factors, if any, might help you live to 100 or more, it would be very important to actually examine the commonalities between people who've actually reached this age. If you just look at people over 90, well, that tells us what features one in five members of the population have in common. And to be clear, I'm not criticising the research or the researchers here at all. Their paper is clearly labelled as a description of the lifestyle of those over 90. They're not claiming to project what factors will help you live to that age, nor are they claiming that this is anything to do with centenarians. It's the book and the documentary that uses sloppy language to conflate relatively ordinary longevity with truly extraordinary longevity. Of the 21 elders that have been featured in the documentary so far, 19, or more than 90% of them, were in their 70s, 80s or 90s. I sincerely hope that they will all have many more happy and healthy years, but the fact is, we just don't know who out of any population is going to reach 100. And the fact that a show that is specifically lived to 100 is struggling to include more 100-year-olds is showing how small these numbers are. Especially because they've had multiple well-funded trips to these various locations. You would think that it would have been relatively easy to find more centenarians if they truly are the hotspots that the documentary claims. Imagine though if I ran a tutoring company that promised to help students get A grades and I assured you that all of the tutors I employ have themselves received A's or B's or C's and or D's. You'd probably want to know what grade your tutor received, right? Now imagine I told you that I simply don't know. All I can guarantee is that they received at least an average passing grade. Would that be convincing to you? No, no, it wouldn't be. <laughs> and again, I don't really want to equate longevity and school grades, but I hope that it's obvious that asking a group of people who haven't yet lived to 100 how to live to 100 is kind of like asking people who haven't received an A how to get an A, or asking someone who's never sat behind the wheel of a car to teach you how to drive. Sure, that person might, in the future, become a stunt car driver. They might even have great reflexes right now and have done really well on their theoretical test, but they haven't actually got the experience of driving yet, so it would be better to ask someone who has. But let me get back to what Poulain and colleagues actually found in their description of the Icarian nonagenarian's lifestyle and how it compares to the Blue Zones TM advice. The researchers identified 98 residents who met their criteria, 21 of whom were temporarily absent, one of them refused to take part, and five of them actually died during the survey. I couldn't find the average age in this particular article, but in a separate article titled Assessment of the Health Status of the Oldest Olds Living on the Greek Island of Icaria, the average age of the survey participants is given as 94. Can I just take a moment to point out how small this number of people is as well, that it's yes. so statistically tiny? Yeah, and the researchers do acknowledge that, and elsewhere where it's referred to by scholars, it is described as a small case study. 
but obviously that's not a message that gets passed on in the book or in the documentary. So in terms of their findings, they said that 78% of the participants reported daily social contact, an overwhelming 90% believed in God. But I don't find that surprising in Greece, right? Especially amongst older people. Indeed. But this is where it gets interesting. Only 34% said that they participated in religious events even on a monthly basis. So you might recall in the previous episode, um, it was recommended that you go to a religious service at least once a week in order to enjoy the benefits of longevity. But these elderly people in Ikaria do not do that. 33% said that they did so on an annual basis. So this is the classic, you know, I go to church at Christmas or I go to church at Easter or I go to church when there's a funeral or a wedding or something like that type of attitude. The majority did not take part in Greek Orthodox fasting, but most of them did participate in the Panayera, which 90% expressed a positive view about. I would just quickly point out here that although we don't know how many Panayera these participants attended, since there are many saints' days, it is possible that people didn't really think of them as a religious event because the church is such a big part of daily life in Greece. Um, I think back to the Greek school we attended in Corfu, distributing information about where we could go and buy holy icons and encouraging us to go and visit the local saint whose remains were preserved in the church. I couldn't imagine that occurring in an Australian context or even a US one. Absolutely not. Um, But it's just considered part of Greek culture rather than a form of proselytising in Um, Greece. That's the thing, the... The church is very tied to the country, Mm. and so these things are just part of daily life rather than particularly religious things. Yeah, it's the cross is depicted on the flag, proselytising of other religions is banned, the Greek Orthodox Church is very protected within the Greek state. Access to healthcare was considered difficult by 66% of residents, while almost a third visited the radioactive hot springs in the south of the island. Interestingly, that's not one of the top recommendations from this area, even though 83% of them felt that it was beneficial to their health. Far more, however, uh, 79% swam in the sea, although most gave this up around the age of 75. And the majority, almost 70%, reported taking a daytime nap of around 80 minutes per day which is something that I find surprising to not be included among the top recommendations for Ikaria. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen in other places of Mm -hmm. this research, you know, getting enough sleep being an important factor in having a long, healthy life. Adriana Huffington has a a book about sleep, and she mentioned the importance of napping in that. Um, Napping is mentioned in the book, but it didn't make it into the Netflix series. Regarding food, which was, of course, a big focus of the survey and, of course, the Netflix documentary, as we've seen, around one third of respondents said that they bought their food locally, one third shopped at the supermarket, and another third did both. So I think that's quite heartening news for anybody who doesn't have the means or isn't in the environment that would allow them to go and visit a local producer or an organic health food shop, that there are very long-lived people who just go to the regular supermarket. But now we have a uh, an interesting story. This is, this is the next major rabbit hole that I went down, courtesy of this article. It has a paragraph which um, I'll just get you to read out if you don't mind, Simon. Sure. 
Another particularity of Ikaria is its relationship with the Communist Party, which earned it the nickname of Red Island. This is in part due to the fact that the island served as a land of exile for many communist political prisoners during the Greek Civil War. However, less than half of the OOs... Yeah, that's the oldest olds. Oh, I see. ...expressed an interest in the Communist Party, and most never attended political events. So this seems like a bit of a throwaway line. They kind of dismiss the impact of communism in Ikaria, despite it being called Red Island, right? They say less than half of the OOs expressed an interest in the Communist Party and most never attended political events. Well, that's kind of a red flag to it. If you don't <laughs> want to be hunted down and killed, like if you were alive during, you know, the Red Purge, you don't exactly want to be particularly interested in it. Yeah, um, I think that's absolutely a, a big issue that is at play here. And um, people's reluctance to identify in a public record about being a communist. For sure. Um, we recently started listening to a podcast called Born Greek, Made American, which describes the huge numbers of children um, who were taken from Greece during this period um, to the United States in connection with this, this Red Scare. It's about a man who discovered that his mother um, had actually been sent to the United States, adopted by a wealthy Greek-American family, after her father was um, killed by the Greek state. So this is all in very recent, you know, living memory of people, um, the, the people who were killed um, on both sides. There were atrocities on both sides of this dispute. But looking at the figures, I have to wonder if the researchers were too quick to dismiss this link to communism. Because almost 40% of those residents over 90 reported taking part in political events and approximately 39% expressed positive views of the Communist Party. And if we look at those figures in context, that's quite remarkable. Given that the party was banned. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not anymore, but given the history, exactly. absolutely. And when we're talking about these people, we're talking about history. I mean, even in a context like Australia... Um, where things were never as severe as they were in Greece or the United States. It's not, uh, so it's not a particularly comfortable position for a lot of people to identify with socialism or communism and other such ideologies. If we look at these figures in context, it's quite remarkable because apparently there were more 90-plus-year-olds in Ikaria who were attending political events than going to church each month. Mm -hmm. And... But be political is not one of our takeaway Blue Zone messages. <laughs> it surely is not. Um, and given that the Comunistico Comelades, uh, or um, the KKE, the Communist Party, usually only receives around 5 to 7% of the general vote, to have 39% of this particular demographic identifying with the Communist Party seems really significant. Ikaria's communist heritage is also described in the Blue Zones book, though, in which the Greek-American physician and the journalist, Dr. Achelle Georgiou, explains how immediately after the Greek Civil War, post-World War II, the government exiled 13,000 communists to the island of Ikaria. Well, that would make up a lot of their ancestry then. Yeah. This is why it's called the Kokinos Vrahos, or the Red Rock. And 
You might recall that communism also featured in our discussion about Sardinia. So this got me thinking about other areas. Could it be that blue zones are really red zones? <laughs> so Japan's Communist Party, which was founded in 1922, vigorously opposed Japan's military aggression before and during World War II. Members were persecuted and imprisoned by the secret police throughout this period. And in the 50s and 60s, the Liberal Democrats, with the aid of the CIA, carried out heavy-handed crackdowns, the New York Times reports. In spite of the party having broken off its ties with the Soviet Union and China back in the 60s. In more recent times, it has become one of Japan's most vocal critics of Beijing's human rights violations. And in a rather striking turn of events, the Japanese Communist Party, or JCP, was the only major political party in Japan that did not send congratulations to the Chinese Communist Party on its 100th anniversary. Mm -hmm. Regardless, however, in their 2021 report, Japan's National Police Agency lumped the JCP in with Islamic State, North Korea, and the Ayum Shinrikyo cult. Oh, wow. The police report notes that the communists are rapidly aging and having difficulty attracting new members. So there we go. We have a blue zone. It's the communists. <laughs> While the NPA report does not specifically specify what threat it thinks that the party poses, the Times reports that it does note that the communists have added gender equality to their platform. They already run more female candidates than any other party. And the other seeming threat is that they are agitating for a nuclear-free Japan which of course would rule out more Prefecture F-style Blue Zone candidates. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Liberal Democrats were calling for a doubling of military spending, an increase in cooperation with the United States, and of course a change to Article 9 of Japan's Constitution, which is the section that outlaws war as a means to settle international disputes involving the state. This pacifist constitution came into effect in 1947 following Japan's surrender in World War II and despite numerous attempts the Liberal Democrats have not been able to achieve the large majority required to change this article because of the opposition of parties including the DJP and the JCP. The JCP remains strongly opposed to the substantial US military presence in Japan which of course as we mentioned before is most keenly felt in areas like Okinawa. In fact, Okinawa's reversion to Japan in the first place owes a lot to leftist organisations. The Okinawan Social Mass Party and Okinawan People's Party organised a signature petition that demanded the island's reunification with Japan and amassed the signatures of 72% of the island's eligible voters in 1952. When the island was finally reunified in 1972, the Okinawa Social Mass Party continued on as a local party and the Okinawan People's Party merged into the Japanese Communist Party. The JCP currently has 10 members in the House of Representatives, one of whom is 76-year-old Seiken Akamine. Notice anything about his surname? Akamine? 
<laughs> well, this is a person who's read in name. Exactly. For any listeners who don't speak Japanese, it begins with the character for Red. Akamine's initial victory in 2014 was part of a wave against the ruling Liberal Democratic Party in Okinawa, caused by anger over the joint US-Japan decision to relocate a marine base into a residential area. In 2014, Akamine received 39.82% of the vote, so very similar numbers to what we saw in Ikaria. And in 2017, that went up slightly to 39.9%, and most recently in 2021, 42.17% of the vote. This is the sort of result that in Japan is usually reserved for the Liberal Democratic Party in other areas, right? Absolutely. They dominate pretty much everywhere. Yeah, this is a significant difference in Mm -hmm. Okinawan politics compared to other parts of Japan. Is this something you were aware of? No. I had no idea. But it's also not surprising, given I know the large number of protesters Mm. in Okinawa are specifically related to anti-war, anti-military, and and anti-occupation. Yeah, absolutely. While these figures are really impressive, it isn't particularly new. It's not like this support for the Communist Party just grew out of nowhere. The JCP has traditionally done well in Okinawa in comparison with other areas of Japan for those reasons that we've just covered. What about then California, the state that only narrowly overturned a bill that had been in place for decades, preventing Communist Party members from holding government jobs in 2017? (laughs) Could California really be a secretly red state? And I don't mean Republican. Probably not. But remember, we are only looking at a small proportion of California's population, those who live in Loma Linda. And we're looking only at a small portion of those. Yes, those who are Seventh-day Adventists. And since it's difficult to find voting statistics on a group that's that specific, I decided to find out what Adventists in general have to say about communism, if anything. That's when I came across an article by Stephen Ferguson on Adventist Today, a US-based Adventist website. The article draws parallels between the doctrines of Marx and the church's beliefs, likening the Bible statement that no one can serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and money, to Marx's comments about modern consumer slavery, the importance of vocation, egalitarianism, and the article even defends Marx's condemnation of religion at least as far as control and manipulation goes. It seems there's a lot of overlap between communist ideas and the true spirit of the church, at least as Ferguson perceives it. He concludes, Evangelism has become marketing. Services have become productions. Worshippers have become consumers. Ministry is no longer a vocation for life. Pastors have become market competitors with each other some reveling in the limelight as famous sexy celebrities. Divisions, unions and conferences are now in competition, if not open conflict. Different youth ministries compete for the allegiances of the same young people rather than act in cooperation. And success has become a new megachurch attaining enormous growth, fostering the mass production techniques of a McDonald's or a Burger King all while their consumer congregations attain as much spiritual nourishment, becoming spiritually obese and lazy. It is hard to reconcile all this with the itinerant preacher from Galilee who owned nothing. Absolutely. Aside from Dr Giorgio's comments on the prevalence of communism in Ikaria, you might remember something else that she said, that 
13,000 communists were exiled to the island. But earlier, I said the population of the island is only 9,000 people, or less actually. It was around 8,800 in 2021, to be more precise. So, how many people were living on the island before the end of the Greek Civil War in 1949, when the 13,000 communists were exiled? I haven't been able to dig up any figures online. But we know that, since 1950, Icaria's population has probably declined by half or more, according to these figures, because there was the 13,000 communists and then however many other people were already living there. And you have to wonder about, you know, how traditional life in Ikaria has changed given the massive influx of people at that time. Like, is this a place that's been untouched for centuries or is this a place that had a massive demographic shift of a huge amount of migration? Mm -hmm. And this difference in the, you know, the population declining, it seems to be a recurring pattern, doesn't it, in these blue zones? other than Loma Linda, which, as we've discussed, doesn't really fit the definition as it's typically conceived. Returning to Poulain and colleagues' description of Icarian's lifestyle factors in their research that was led by Romain Lagrand, they concluded that family solidarity, social interaction, and physical activity were the most important aspects. And interestingly, they say the result of Mediterranean diet is less convincing. Yeah, I mean, that's not surprising to hear, but it is something that I don't think Butner would want to hear. Well, in the Blue Zones book, he says, you could make a longevity claim for every component of the Icarian diet. <laughs> Which is true, but, you know, I yeah. could make a longevity claim about the components of most diets. The only evidence that we need of that is to listen to an advertisement for some kind of breakfast cereal, right? Oh, absolutely. You can claim that spreading chocolate on toast is good for children's developing brains or that consuming sugary cereal will somehow help you lose weight. And these aren't made-up examples. They're the exact sorts of claims that are used to promote products like Nutella and, of course, cereals made by manufacturers like Kellogg, who we profiled in the previous episode. Butner even tries his own hand at this sort of promotion, saying, One could even argue that potatoes which are highly correlated with obesity in the United States, contributed heart-healthy potassium, vitamin B6, and fibre to the Icarian diet. But surely potatoes contribute those nutrients, regardless of where they're consumed. Absolutely. Later in the chapter, he says that you can tie any of the factors that the book identifies to longevity and build an interesting story about each one. That's what the $20 billion diet industry and $21 billion health club industry do. But somewhat conveniently, he neglects to mention the $10.5 billion self-help and the $60 billion diet industry, which would include things like books on blue zones and Mediterranean diet courses. I mean, it's kind of a mask-off moment, isn't it, where he is saying, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I think it, it kind of is. Not necessarily consciously, but mm. it certainly could be used to describe the Blue Zone's trademark um, brand. Interestingly, when the researchers defined the Mediterranean diet, they actually put meat first on their list, followed by fish, milk, yogurt, and other dairy. In any case, the level of adherence to the Mediterranean diet in the study was only found to be around 60%. 
the adherence to social and physical activities that they had in common was far more usual. But the study also gives us some clues as to the origin of the idea that the Mediterranean diet is so healthy. It says, The idea that Mediterranean populations are protected from cardiovascular disease through their eating habits comes from the work led by Keyes in the 1950s to 1980s. Have you heard of this oh, guy? Ansel Keys. Yes. Why does everything come back to them? I guess it's because he was a dietitian working in America with close ties to the government there. So therefore, his message has become very widespread. Mm-hmm. So Ansel Keys' most famous study is probably the Seven Countries Study, um, which Butner describes in the Blue Zones book. And that study looked at males aged between 40 to 59, so it's a really sort of narrow age group here, in seven different countries, the US, Finland, the Netherlands, Italy, Yugoslavia, Greece and Japan. And we've spent time in all of those places, including the Yugoslavian study sites, which were Croatia and Serbia. Does anything stand out to you about that list of countries? Well, they're all, um, you know, very white, except for, well, you might not say Japan is. Yeah, that's the first thing that I noticed as well. Um, There's only one Asian nation that's represented. There's nowhere in Africa, there's nowhere in the Pacific, uh, there's nowhere in the entire Southern Hemisphere. I know Mm. that it's a, a large area geographically and not perhaps in terms of the number of people that are there, but it's just... Very European. Yeah, very European, very US, American and European, apart from Japan. The other thing that I noticed, though, is that there's a big overlap here with the blue zones. So you've got the US, Italy, Greece, Japan. All of the um, blue zones that we've studied so far happen to be in this seven countries Mm. study. And I think that that's not a coincidence and I'm not saying that because these are the healthiest places necessarily. And that's not what the, the seven country study was setting out to do. It was just trying to look at the relationship between diet and cardiovascular health. It wasn't trying to claim that these countries were more healthy than anywhere else. But again, it, there's a similarity here in the sense that these places are kind of easy to access and the researcher might have particular reasons for wanting to choose them right and certainly that's been one of the claims about the seven country study that it was highly selective in where it decided to choose the study suggested that the risk of heart attack and stroke is correlated with the level of total serum cholesterol in individuals and at the national level and there's that key word again though correlated How do we know that elevated cholesterol levels are what's causing cardiovascular problems? Could it be that poor cardiovascular health affects our cholesterol? Or even that some other factor causes both high cholesterol and poor cardiovascular health without one of those necessarily causing the other? This stuff is really, really complicated and very difficult to control for in a lot of ways. And still not very well understood now. I can only imagine when Ansel Keys was doing his research. Yes, there's a lot of debate. In the years since the work was carried out, the Seven Countries study has been subject to quite a lot of criticism. In 1957, two researchers, Eurosalmi and Hilebo, pointed out that Keyes had only selected a handful of countries from the more than 20 
for which data was apparently available. Analysis of the full data set seemed to make the link between fat intake and heart disease much less clear. These researchers described the connection that Keyes had reported as a tenuous association. The following year in 1958, the scientist John Goffman described measuring serum cholesterol as a dangerously misleading guide in evaluating the effects of diet. In 1971, John Yudkin suggested that rather than fat, it could be sugar that is at the root of heart disease. And in 1973, Raymond Reiser identified numerous methodological and interpretational errors in a review of 40 feeding trials. In 1977, George Mann described Keyes' claims about the correlation of dietary fat and coronary disease as naive. Mann had studied the mainly meat-based diets of Alaskan Eskimos, Congolese Pygmies, the Maasai of Tanzania and Kenya, and concluded that other factors, like a lack of exercise, were more likely to be responsible for the heart disease observed. And it sounds like you can, you know, choose anything and say this is the link between these two things because we're just once again looking at correlations and not actual mechanisms by which uh, one causes the other. Yes. So obviously there has been a lot of research that has gone into this since trying to identify those mechanisms, but it is, like I mentioned, an incredibly complex area. That being said, the dietary advice that we've all heard about reducing our intake of saturated fats and things like that has actually changed quite considerably, even though many of us, and doctors as well, often haven't received this new updated message. Back in 2010, the American Dietetic Association expressed their concern over the health risks that are associated with replacing saturated fats with often refined carbohydrates, which themselves carry a high risk of heart disease. And in 2015, Professors Hu and Lichtenstein said that the consensus is that a low-fat diet of that kind that is recommended by the Keyes study is probably not a good idea. And as of 2000, the American Heart Association and the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute had revised their guidelines to avoid this type of advice. The advice has not been to eat a low-fat diet or a low-animal products diet for more than 20 years at this point, but it still seems to be repeated quite a bit. More recently, Robert Lustig echoed those early researchers' criticisms of Key's seeming cherry-picking of 7 out of 22 countries, and similar to Yudkin's suggestion, pointed out that the results for Japan and Italy could also be explained by their relatively low sugar consumption. Today, we know that sugar intake, among other factors such as stress, is known to increase the risk of diabetes, which itself is associated with cardiovascular risks. So this is a, just a fragment of how complicated this issue can be. Though it's important to note that Lustig has his own competing theory. He's the author of several popular books about sugar. In 2017, the True Health Initiative commissioned a white paper addressing what it calls the revisionist claims about Ansel Keyes' research, and that includes those claims that were made by Lustig, which they frame as, one, that countries were selected and excluded based on desired outcome, two, that France was purposely excluded because of the French paradox, 
Three, that dietary data from Greece was inaccurate due to surveys being administered during Lent, which of course is when a lot of people fast. Mm. And four, that sugar was not considered as a possible contributor. So these are all myths. These are what the True Health Initiative claims are revisionist claims that are myths. Personally, I would group one and two together. The idea that some countries were excluded based on the desired outcome and the fact that France was purposely excluded, it's the same 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 claim. And the evidence that they provide is essentially the same for both. But these are the myths that they set out to bust in their white paper. The authors admit that Keyes and his team did not perform a random selection. However, they maintain, based on their review of the source materials, the relevant timelines, and asking the investigators that the investigators did not select locations where they knew ahead of time what the outcomes would be. I don't know about you, but personally, I don't find asking the researchers whether or not they cherry-picked data a particularly reassuring method of investigation. No, no, certainly not. The fact that they have access to these people and thought that asking them was a good way of deciding whether or not that work was non-biased shows, well, at least a naivety. Indeed. The notion that France was excluded because of the French paradox, they say, is anachronistic because the information behind the French paradox, which, have you heard of the French paradox before? Uh, is that the, they eat a lot of cream, but they, they stay healthy? Exactly. So this observation that France has a relatively low incidence of coronary heart disease despite consuming a diet rich in saturated fats, that was not known at the time, so they couldn't have selected against it. And I think this is a fair claim with regard to the researchers' intent. It seems like, in actual fact, the French didn't cooperate or there wasn't enough data or something of that nature. But it doesn't change the fact that several studies have since cast doubt on this link between fat consumption and cardiovascular disease. The authors of the white paper maintain that dietary data was intentionally collected during Lent to account for seasonal variation. But interestingly, they found no meaningful differences in terms of the macronutrient or dietary intake during Lent versus at the other times. So again, while this suggests that that was kind of a myth, it also suggests that that link is not as clear-cut as Mm. what may have been claimed. Finally, they state that the 1980 monograph, published on the basis of a decade of findings from the Seven Countries study, did examine the association between sucrose and heart disease, but that this association disappeared when saturated fat was added to the model suggesting that sugar is mainly associated with heart disease because it is strongly correlated with fat consumption. Now, as with any scholarship, any attempt to simplify research on nutrition is fraught with potholes, right? What we eat and how we process it and what it does to our bodies is enormously complex. And it's natural for there to be disagreements amongst researchers because this stuff is far from settled science. So we should look really critically at any advice that says eliminate sugar or eliminate fat or eliminate meat or eliminate carbs. Because in most cases, there simply is not sufficient evidence to warrant eliminating an entire category of food. And there's far more evidence that a varied diet combined with keeping socially and mentally and physically active is the most beneficial thing that you can do. As Butner correctly writes in his book, after attempting to distill the lessons of the blue zones, there is no silver bullet. Now again, I'm far from a nutritionist, 
But ultimately, I think there are probably some things that Keyes got right, and there are other things that I agree with his critics on. No research is perfect, especially when you're trying to conduct a multi-nation study involving real human participants. And part of academia is that we constantly reassess, we revisit, if you will, previous studies and try to improve upon them. And this sort of debate and constant improvement is just part and parcel of regular scholarship. What is less common, though, is for researchers to write a white paper defending existing, highly influential research like the Seven Country Study. But I think that's a large part a reaction to the fact that it has become a demonised study in many groups, maybe conspiratorially or maybe rightly. It's hard to say without looking at it. Very true. And my criticism isn't so much that they wrote a paper addressing those myths, but rather that it was published as a white paper commissioned by the True Health Initiative, as opposed to being submitted to an academic journal for peer review. Sure. Which is where the majority of the criticisms of Keyes' work have taken place. They were submitted to academic journals, they were reviewed by disinterested third party experts, their claims were scrutinised before they were published. Whereas this white paper is just a PDF published by the True Health Initiative, as far as I can tell. It's not edited by an unbiased third party. Instead, the authors acknowledge their gratitude for the, quote, detailed reviews, critiques, and commentaries of the researchers directly involved in the Seven Countries study. Mm. The white paper does contain a competing interest section, which, as we know, is something that's typically um, included in an academic article. And normally that's where you would declare, you know, this research was funded by such and such, or in the past I have accepted an invitation to give a lecture at such and such an organisation that's involved or whatever. But in this particular white paper, the authors state, this work was a voluntary contribution by the authors to the True Health Initiative and was uncompensated. The authors have no competing interests to disclose. Okay, sounds good. It sounds good, but it also sounds dubious. Well. Or they're cherry-picking on what they think a conflicting interest is. So I went onto the True Health Initiative's website, because I'd never heard of this organisation before, have you? No. And I found out that two of the four authors of that white paper are current board members of the True Health Initiative, a group which has considerably more for-profit than not-for-profit partners. And according to their affiliations declared in the paper, one of the authors is both the founder and the president of that organisation. You know who else appears on the council? Is it our friend Dan? It is. Dan Butner is on the True Health Initiative Council as well. I knew there had to be a reason for this quite uh, lengthy excursion. (laughs) I'm glad that you had that faith in me because I did not know this (laughs) until... Until I read that. And again, I'm not trying to suggest that there's any sort of impropriety here. Rather, just to point out that these things are a combination of a lot of factors. What research is presented to the public isn't just a function of what has been done and shown to be right. It's a function of 
what companies want to push, what the government wants to push. It's all sorts of different political and economic considerations that go into how research is perceived and received by society that is beyond any scientific truth or merit. Especially when we're looking at institutions like this that are not uh, part of a university and publishing in journals. Mm. Yes. I mean, they very much may, and in fact I believe do, publish in academic journals, but this particular white paper is Mm. seemingly just something that these authors have written themselves in response to these claims and published through this True True Health Initiative rather than submitting it for anyone else's validation. And I think that's, that's disappointing. So I think it's really important that we remember the filters that scientific information that we receive has passed through by the time it gets into something like a documentary. It's gone through so many different layers of competing interests, declared, undeclared, conscious, unconscious, before we get this distilled and oversimplified version that's delivered to us as the public. The book also makes some interesting claims about Greek society based on language. Butner talks to the owner of a guest house, Thea, who was born in Detroit to an American mother and a Nicorian father. And she tells him that in Greek, there is no word for privacy. Oh, I can't imagine that's true. Of course, this reminds me of the claim that there's no word for retirement in Japanese, Absolutely. which we know is untrue. And once again, Butner doesn't, you know, turn to a dictionary and check this or ask his interpreter. He just uses it as evidence to bolster the claim that there's something special about Ikarian society. And maybe there is. But why would that be reflected in the Greek language as a whole? Indeed! <laughs> And not only are there, indeed, various words that can be translated as privacy in Greek, but some philosophers even trace the very concept of privacy back to Aristotle. So it certainly isn't the case that this is a completely foreign concept. But, of course, it's time for us to move on and go to the next destination, which uh, is a really exciting one because we will actually be in the next destination uh, when we record the next podcast. So we'll catch you again in Costa Rica. Yeah, and uh, hopefully we'll get to meet those people that Butner describes as the most extraordinary centenarians on the planet.